Good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, we're going to do a, a slightly different format uh, tonight. Usually we just talk about the, obviously, the week that's passed and what we can look forward to. So we're going to widen it and talk a little bit about the year that's passed and what could happen uh, in the year ahead in 2022. So as we know, this year has been a year of uh, many unprecedented things in Israeli politics, but it started uh, with an unprecedented another election um, after a relatively short-lived uh, Gantz Netanyahu government, which uh, broke up in December uh, 2020. Um, it was a calculated move, as we all knew then, and we all certainly know now, uh, by then Prime Minister Netanyahu to ensure that he wouldn't have to sit with Gantz for too long. And uh, while he had an agreement that they would uh, rotate the premiership, it was obviously not something that he ever intended to, to fulfill and use the sort of escape hatch of the non-passing of a budget in December, which uh, automatically uh, called elections three months later. It was a calculated risk. At the time, it seemed like a good calculated risk because Netanyahu uh, felt that he had enough um, to form a stable right-wing religious government uh, after so many mishaps and so many attempts, so many elections. Um, and in fact, really on paper, to a certain extent, he did. But uh, and we know now, in hindsight, uh, reality was very different. Uh, because several, at least three uh, right-wing parties uh, decided not to go with uh, Netanyahu and formed this really unprecedented government. We've had uh, unity governments in the past. We've had a few different ones, uh, but usually it revolved around two major parties, one from the centre-left, one from the centre-right, usually Labour, Likud, historically. Um, we've also had Kadima and Likud and, and, and others, but uh, this one we saw just a large amount of parties with no one party really having a large amount of seats and un really truly unprecedented. We had a prime minister with six seats. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a rotation agreement and, and, and we know now we have parties from the right to the left. And for the first time in Israel's history, we have an Arab party, not just an Arab party, but an Islamist party. Uh, obviously, the, 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 the Ram party of Mansour Abbas. It's really unprecedented that a party like that should sit in the government. And we've heard really unprecedented things from an Arab Israeli leader. Only last week at the, at the Globes conference, Mansour Abbas recognized and talked about the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish state. Now, that's completely unprecedented. Yes, there are Arab parties who have worked with the government to secure their needs, to service their communities, whatever it may be. But we've never had uh, a significant Arab-Israeli leader who's gone publicly, by the way, he said it in Arabic as well, and said that I, Israel was born as a Jewish state and it will continue to be that. You know, we have to understand that reality. These were unprecedented words. Uh, and we've seen throughout the year that Mansour Abbas 
it's not a flash in the pan. At least so far, you know, he has really been a, a pretty considerate um, uh, part of the coalition. He's understood the limits of his power uh, with only, uh, I think, five or six seats. Um, and when it's come to it, you know, he's, he's able to, on the whole, keep his party in line, even though there is quite um, disparate amounts of abuse. You know, we had, as I said, that around the same time as Mansour Abbas was saying these unprecedented things about Israel's Jewish state, we had another member of the party meeting with the recently released uh, Sheikh Rayyad Salah from the banned Northern uh, Islamic movement, which is uh, which has been banned because it's uh, for incitement and uh, support for terror, some might say, certainly anti-Semitism. And here we had a Ram leader uh, uh, congratulate or be pictured alongside uh, such a leader at the same time as the leader of the party was talking, uh, you know, uh, in a way, as I said, that we've never heard. Not wanting to already move on to the 2022 uh, uh, yet, but there are a lot of people who say that uh, uh, this could be the end of Ram. It could be that Mansour Abbas is leaning towards creating a new party, which will be built more in him, his image uh, and leave maybe Ram behind, leave some of the sort of the, the anti-Zionist sentiment, a strong anti-Zionist sentiment behind, perhaps. Again, this, this is something that we hear. But, you know, this government, many predicted it would fall because of it, it was a party of such disparate uh, parts with no one powerful leader. Uh, but we saw that they, they've worked pretty well together. The leaders have really understood that it's in everyone's interest to work together. And there's been a lot of give and take, but they've managed to achieve things, not least the state budget, the state budget that hadn't been passed for almost three years previously. And there was a lot of give and take. And in fact, they passed it well ahead of time, weeks ahead of time. Uh, and of course, there were always going to be some, you know, some uh, uh, jockeying for position and for budgets. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people take their hats off to Finance Minister Victor Lehman. He was able to really to find a budget, uh, which is not easy. You know, we described in, in, uh, around that time how it's uh, two different laws. There's arrangement laws and there's the budget law, which is the numbers. The arrangement laws is exactly what's going to be spent on. And it was a very, very long uh, law and it had to be voted on, uh, but it was passed. And that puts off any immediate threat uh, it put off, at least, I should say, any immediate threat to this government for the foreseeable future. As I've said uh, in previous weeks, there's no great threat at this moment to the coalition. In theory, they could not pass another law and fail to pass another law, I should say, for as long as they want until the next budget comes up. And there's no threat that the government will fall. The only real threats are if a budget doesn't pass, and this was a two-year budget, so they don't have to worry about it for a while, or no confidence vote. And we talked before about the only party, ironically, especially how this year uh, began, the only party that could uh, uh, possibly desert the coalition and go across and give Netanyahu the eight seats he needs to form a uh, coalition because he has 53 at the moment, you need obviously 61, is Benny Gantz's party, the partner which he dumped on the wayside in his zeal to try and uh, enhance his power. So. There's a certain amount of irony in that. Uh, but as I said, this part of this uh, coalition doesn't seem to be in any immediate danger. There are disagreements, uh, you know, almost every day on the ideological front, not least with uh, uh, the visit uh, yesterday of Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas, 
uh, to Benny Gantz, Defence Minister Benny Gantz's home. Uh, as you can imagine, the left greeted this, the right slammed it. But what is clear is that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, Prime, sorry, Prime Minister Bennett knew about it in advance. And, uh, you know, while he also will feel frustrated by it, it's not something he naturally seeks, it's, you know, ideologically speaking, it's clear that he understands that he has to give a certain amount of leeway to each uh, party in his coalition to seek their own, you know, sort of noise. Um, and, and what we're seeing is each government minister is, is able to, uh, you know, really look and see what they can be doing in their ministry uh, under Netanyahu. Netanyahu was such a powerful leader that every minister who wanted to do something big within their, whether it's a reform, whether it's a big uh, uh, project, really had to pass it by Netanyahu. Not to say that uh, Bennett won't be informed about these things in advance as the prime minister, but certainly um, the, 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 the power structures in the Israeli government have been decentralized, uh, partly because of the fact that we have a relatively weak prime minister, but also partly because that's what you have in a parliamentary system. And so one could argue we've actually gone back to its natural state uh, and it seems to be working. Uh, I've long stated that uh, on the leadership level, uh, there's a real understanding to make this work for as long as possible. Um, but when you have a, a government or a coalition of 61, you know, all you need is one or two uh, votes and you don't have a majority anymore. A case in point is uh, today's, uh, there was supposed to be a vote on a, uh, a, a reform of the conversion system uh, and the numbers were not looking great anyway. There were some members of Yamina who are more uh, strict and a lot of them who know that probably in the future they'll have to work in a government with the ultra-orthodox who uh, sort of didn't necessarily want to see this, even though it was being uh, promoted by the Minister of Religious Affairs, uh, a member of Matan Kahana, a member of Yamina. But interestingly enough, the Ram Party uh, dissented and said that they wouldn't vote for it. It seems, at least from the news, that uh, they, you, you wonder why an Islamist party care about a, a law on Jewish conversion, uh, where it seems the case was made by none other than Shas and the ultra-Orthodox parties that the more conversions that take place, the more Jews there'll be in the country, uh, which means that the, that will upset the demographic balance. So it's quite extraordinary that ultra-Orthodox leaders, if this is true, and they, they made that uh, clear openly publicly on the news that this is the case they made, that they would want less Jews uh, in the Jewish state. So there's... there's Still going to be a lot of barriers along the way, but certainly so far, this government uh, seems to have some level of longevity. Uh, the big question that everyone asks, and I was in the Knesset earlier in the week, and certainly I asked everyone, uh, as I frequently do, is do you think that the power sharing agreement between uh, Lapid uh, and Bennett will be fulfilled? Will Bennett hand over to Lapid in 2023? Uh, the prime ministership. My feeling has always been that Bennett himself will, but there are others who may not want that to happen, who may be jockeying for position and seeing what they can do to make sure that doesn't happen. Because as I said, you know, you, you don't just look at the, the current government, you have to look at the next elections. There's always what, what I call in Israeli politics, that two-year itch, where it used to be. These days, sometimes it could be two-month itch, uh, but it used to be two years of relative relative tranquility. And then, because everyone knows that Israeli governments don't last their full term, rarely even close to it. 
So usually around three years, election is held, sometimes less. So after two years, every party started to think, okay, what am I positioning myself for in the next elections? How can I entice my voters? How can I differentiate myself or my party from others around me, you know, uh, on the political map? So, uh, you know, that, that won't happen for a while. And that will happen as Lapid is supposed to become prime minister. So that could certainly become uh, part of the calculations and also whether parties feel that they've had enough successes and achievements to be able to go back to the voters. Uh, so that, that's really my feeling on, 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 on the government. Uh, across the aisle, the opposition, Netanyahu doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Today, uh, there was a law passed, an interesting law. It's called the, it, it was given sometimes these so-called personnel laws where laws were created specifically for some, with someone in mind are named after that person. So this law, not officially, of course, uh, was called the Barkat Law. What the Barkat Law is, there's a politician in Likud called Nir Barkat. He was the, the, the mayor of Jerusalem, and he's probably the greatest threat to Netanyahu within the Likud. Most polls have him as second in Likud and most likely to bring the most amount of seats if Netanyahu should uh, resign or retire. Um, and basically, Nir Barkat is also a multi-billionaire. He's one of the wealthiest people in Israel. And a lot of people in Likud, mostly uh, led by Netanyahu, are afraid that he will use his money to unseat Netanyahu, to gain popularity. He's, always, he's already held some very high-level uh, events with you know, high-level catering and musicians and whatever. So there's, there's, there's certainly a certain amount of fear uh, from the Netanyahu camp. And one of his, let's say, foot soldiers in the Knesset, Dudi Amsalem, uh, put up this law which says that uh, to limit the amount that someone can spend in primaries, uh, primaries within parties, uh, to 100,000 shekels, which is a pretty low uh, amount. And that was blatantly with Barakat in mind. Interestingly enough, uh, the coalition decided they didn't want uh, the opposition to have this even this success. So what they did is they created Sharon Cheskel of New Hope, a member of the government, uh, basically put up an identical law and that uh, passed through uh, the first reading and I'm sure it probably will pass through. Uh, so it shows that Netanyahu is nervous. His position isn't necessarily under threat at the moment, but there is a lot of disquiet in the good and you could see that by the amount of relatively high profile people in the good who voted against the law. You can also see it in the anger of uh, some in the good with Netanyahu's threat that any liquid member who doesn't come for a law uh, uh, you know, to the Knesset in time to vote on a law, they've been named and shamed, and there's a lot of anger about the way it's been treated. And don't forget, these are people who have been used to being ministers with all that comes along with it. So while Netanyahu is not under threat at the moment, um, that could change in the months ahead. I wouldn't bet, uh, I wouldn't uh, put any money on it, but uh, certainly that's a possibility. The big question, uh, which everyone's asking at the end of 2021 and 2022, is Iran. What's going to happen with Iran? Will Israel attack Iran? Will Israel take measures against Iran? And basically, a lot of it depends on what happens in Vienna. As we've been told time and time again in recent days and recent weeks, this is the so-called last chance for Iran. The Americans have said it, the Brits have said it, the French have said it. Um, and so far, uh, the Iranians have not come with any serious intentions, despite the Chinese in the Russians trying to play up uh, the Iranian side of things, uh, but it does seem that there is, uh, uh, you know, a 
quite a lot of room. Um, the Americans in the West seem to have a lot of patience with this. They do want a deal. The moment that there's a deal on the table, it means that Israel's opportunity to act becomes much, much smaller. As we know, during the JCPOA years before uh, former President Trump removed the US from it, uh, Israel did not take any major steps against Iran because it didn't want to be seen as destroying the agreement. As soon as uh, President Trump uh, withdrew American support for the JCPOA, Israel's uh, uh, operations uh, and uh, actions uh, really were ramped up. And uh, Israel is certainly trying to make its uh, presence felt in Vienna. It's, it's saying that the Iranian, you know, that you know, uh, less for less is not a good idea. That's what some people are talking about. And uh, they certainly wouldn't be happy with what is being talked about as a possible deal. But at the moment, uh, there is nothing uh, concrete on the table. But it does seem like at some point there will be something. And when that happens, if the Americans sign up, which I'm sure they will, uh, that obviously uh, limits Israel's room for maneuver, despite what Prime Minister uh, Bennett will say, that Israel retains the right uh, to act even if there is an agreement, the reality is probably that will restrict them heavily unless there is some you know, great maneuver towards uh, nuclear weaponization. What Israel will probably do is return to the position that it had during the JCPOA, where it will increase intelligence to show to the West that Iran is not keeping its end of the deal. Um, but probably on the, uh, especially if Iran is keeping somewhat to the deal, uh, Israel's room for maneuver will be much, much smaller. So that, those are some of the issues. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about those for any questions or any other issue which I haven't raised. All right, thank you so much. So the first question in is from Jeffrey Sheff. Uh, it has been written that the reason the coalition still exists is that none of the party leaders can see a political future for themselves outside the cur current coalition. Do you agree? Um, yes and no. First of all, uh, Israeli politics is, is you know, is fascinating. It can throw up so many surprises. I mean, to, this year, as I said, we've had unprecedented surprises, but there's always surprises. So, you know, you, you take a party like Yeshatid. Yeshatid, according to polls, is, is actually growing. Uh, while they certainly have said that they wouldn't sit with Netanyahu, they could certainly sit with uh, Likud in the future. They've sat with Likud, the same with Yisrael Beiteinu. Israel Beteno have probably more of a problem with the ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh, Yamina, uh, in a post-Netanyahu scenario, could certainly uh, find itself back in the government. New Hope, which is polling very close to the electoral threshold. Um, it remains to be seen. A lot of these people, a lot of these parties may, uh, you know, sort of uh, return in some way to the Likud, especially in a post-Netanyahu scenario. Um, the parties on the left, the far left, merits, labor, probably, you know, at the moment, the majority of Israelis are uh, voting for right, right wing parties. So um, it's unlikely that they'll necessarily be in a future government and Ram as well, although Ram, again, could be game changers, you know, as, as they have been this time. They, they discussed with Netanyahu to form a government with, with them, serious talks. Uh, in the end, they decided to go with the current government. So at the moment, uh, you know, it it, it it remains to be seen. There are so many factors. As I said, elections are not in the offing. Uh, it all depends what happens in the next few months, if there's some achievement, success. You know, uh, Bennett was going in the wrong direction in polls. And then there was a poll last week, which 
saw him double his uh, current size. Uh, so one never knows exactly what's going to happen. 24 hours is a long time in Israeli politics, and uh, a few months is certainly a long time. So it remains to be seen uh, what happens in the months uh, and certainly maybe even years ahead. Thank you. Um, so we have Marvin Klemel asked about, um, you know, so the, I'm looking at an article from Al Jazeera right now saying Israeli settlers attacked village and occupied West Bank. Can you comment on this further? And then we have a follow-up question from an anonymous attendee asking how serious to the coalition is the Barlev and Yamina MK's disagreement on this? Yeah, so certainly, as I said, the ideological differences are coming uh, you know, are, are being raised, if not daily, at least weekly. Um, I don't know exactly what that article is. Obviously, I can't see it in front of me. Uh, interestingly, I just saw, um, you know, uh, how many attacks there were. You know, there, there's this idea, which is definitely being portrayed to the West, especially in the US, that settler attacks have increased uh, and they're the most uh, problematic and potentially incendiary thing that's happening in West Bank, Judea and Samaria. And actually the facts uh, are very different. The amount of settler or Israeli attacks on Palestinians in, in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria has actually gone down uh, this year. Whereas the number of attacks on Israelis by Palestinians uh, in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria has actually gone up. There's thousands and thousands of attacks, but these attacks on a daily, you know, if we're talking about, I think 4,000 this year, uh, you can imagine they're not just daily, sometimes even hour, whether they're rock attacks, whether they're Molotov cocktails, whether they're stabbing attempts, whether they're shooting attempts. Uh, these are happening on a regular basis, but they do not make the news, certainly not the international news, and do not make their way into foreign, uh, foreign policy circles, whereas you know, many, if not most, uh, settler attacks uh, make headline news somewhere, not to justify any of them, uh, but certainly the size and number of the two sides of it are certainly not uh, equal uh, you know, in, in any way, shape or form. So I can't talk specifically about what, what the article talks about because I don't uh, know that specific event, but certainly the, uh, it's, it's become a bit of an outsized uh, nature. And, and Minister Barlev's comments certainly riled a lot of people on the right because there was so much focus on uh, the so-called settler attacks as opposed to the Palestinian attacks on settlers. Um, and that certainly, it will continue. It's not a great threat to the government. It, you know, they, they've been attacking each other in the, in the media um, for quite a while, you know, since the beginning in some way. Um, and I think that will continue because there are differences, you know, of opinions and ideologies. And I don't think uh, that will, that will uh, stop. But if you look again at the leaders, you don't see the leaders on the whole attacking each other, even uh, the Gantz meeting uh, with Mahmoud Abbas, you saw uh, Zevelkin, who's probably one of the most right-wing uh, members of the coalition, a fellow uh, cabinet minister to Barlev. Even he, if you read his actual comments, he certainly uh, condemned it, but not in personal terms. And he you know, sort of used language, this is not a meeting I would have held, this is not something you know, again, in very cautionary sort of terms. So I think that really shows that no one wants to, at, at that level, at the member of Knesset level, yes, there's, there's, there are attacks uh, from one member of Knesset to another, one party to another, but at the higher levels, we see uh, that they're not going too far. And I think that will continue. 
Thank you. An anonymous attendee asks, regarding Iran and the serious threat to Israel, is there anything more that Israel can do to reduce the possibility of war? Can Israel make Iran understand Israel would prefer living in peace with the Iranian people? Well, that makes a differentiation between Iran and the Iranian people. Israel has no beef with the Iranian people. It says it regularly, tries to reach out to the Iranian people and says, you know, you're not our enemy. It's the Ayatollah uh, led leadership, which is the one that's calling for the end of Israel, it's calling for the annihilation of Israel to wipe it off its map. It's the sort of description that it puts on its missiles, you know, as it uh, goes through the streets of Tehran, the ballistic missile testing, which uh, could reach all of Israel. You know, that's the sort of bellicose uh, nature which is coming out of Tehran. Um, so I'm not sure. You know, this isn't this isn't uh, like with the moderate Sunni. Uh, regimes. You know, Iran is a theocracy. It is run by, you know, there's a big debate exactly where the Ayatollahs are, how rational they are, how driven by religious ideology they are. What we've certainly seen this year is that the governments, which is basically handpicked by the Ayatollahs, are certainly more extreme and more hard line uh, than the previous one, which was seen as, you know, quote unquote, relatively moderate or pragmatic. Uh, so it's certainly a, a turn for the worse. Um, Israel doesn't seek a war with Iran, but Israel also can't allow a nation, uh, or let's say a leadership that says it's going to destroy uh, uh, you know, the state of Israel to have the ability to do it. You know, Jewish history in the not too recent past is, is, shows an example when someone says they're going to destroy you, sometimes you have to sort of uh, uh, understand that there is that intention. So you mentioned that the opportunity to act is getting would be smaller if there was a deal on the table with Iran. Uh, do you think that the U.S. and, and the United Kingdom and, and France would support Israel if something were to happen that they would need to attack even with a deal on the table? If there's a deal on the table, then I don't think they would support them. If they felt that also Iran was getting closer and closer and on the threshold of becoming uh, you know, militarized nuclear state, then probably behind closed doors, there'd be some sort of understanding uh, for, a, for an attack. I, I don't think that Israel would not inform, especially the US, maybe at the last minute, maybe, you know, without the opportunity to do anything. But again, at this point, everything depends on Vienna. That's really, if there's an agreement, it changes the game. If there's not an agreement, which I think is less likely, uh, then that also changes the game. But I think at the moment, um, the West, the, the US, France, and the UK certainly wouldn't give a green light for a, a major Israeli attack on Iran at this point in time. Understood. Uh, Reuven Hawk asks, what are your thoughts about the apparent attempt by Turkey's Erdogan to improve relations with Israel? How should Israel respond? It's, it's an interesting one because we've seen that relationship go up and down. We've seen some terribly anti-Semitic comments, um, uh, you know, uh, not just comments, actions. You know, Hamas has a base in, in Turkey, according to some Israeli officials. It's even been a base to launch um, terror attacks, to fundraise for terrorist organizations. So it's not just about the comments, it's, it's about the actions as well. Uh, but we do, we have heard in recent weeks uh, the language being toned down and Erdogan openly saying that he would like better relations. Of course, he has to put in that caveat as long as the Palestinian issue is dealt with because he's long wanted to portray himself as the leader of the Palestinian cause. Uh, 
there was an interesting event with a, um, a, an organization of rabbis in Islamic lands that went to visit with him uh, last week. And he said very positive things about Jews, about uh, Israel. Uh, but again, uh, I, I think, you know, we, we've dealt with this question before. And with Erdogan, uh, as we've seen, at least uh, from, from history, that he can say nice things one day and then the next day say something very different. So at the moment, things seem to be positive. There seems to be a relatively positive atmosphere. Um, but, you know, uh, it remains to be seen. Some are tying it into the economic situation in Turkey, that uh, he needs to play nice at this point. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Also, Turkey, I don't think, uh, if I'm correct, is, is a million miles away from their own election season. And obviously Erdogan's favorability is going down, especially with the economic situation and the uh, hyperinflation. Uh, so I think that we'll, we'll start to see uh, a lot of rhetoric coming out dependent on where Erdogan sees his chances of re-election amongst his base. All right, and to end on a slightly lighter note, uh, do you think that Israel will be letting tourists into the country in the coming 2022? Oh, I hope at some point, I hope we're not gonna go a whole year without tourists. That would be a, a death knell to our tourism industry. Well, what, what, what I, it seems to be happening is that they're already starting to take more and more countries out of the rest, red list because there is this feeling Omicron is already in Israel. So why, uh, you know, hurt the tourism industry, the airline industry, if it's already, you know, it's already come in. Um, so more and more uh, uh, red countries are, uh, formerly red countries are coming off the list. The US, the UK and Canada are still there. There's talk of possibly even in a week, they're coming off. Uh, tourists may well come soon after that, perhaps for the fully vaccinated. Uh, interestingly enough, there is a there is more and more talk. I've actually been hearing it for a couple of weeks, and there seems to be more and more talk, even openly, that uh, the Omicron in some medical circles uh, in Israel are saying that it could be the greatest blessing uh, because Omicron is seen to be highly contagious, but not especially deadly, especially compared with the Delta and even the original uh, virus. So some are suggesting that maybe this is the opportunity to go for herd immunity, especially in a vaccinated population, which, again, the, the vaccines are less effective uh, in transmission, but certainly still remain effective in uh, preventing serious illness. And with the drugs that uh, Pfizer uh, are, are delivering a treatment, it could be, and again, I say this with a a great caveat, but I'm hearing it more and more, that there are voices who are saying, you know, we're not going to go to lockdown anymore, uh, to just have this full cycle of just locking down every, you know, every few months and then coming up and then uh, closing the airports and then this, that maybe it's worth just letting Omicron go around in a vaccinated population, pushing the vaccine still, uh, and then maybe there'll be some sort of herd immunity. I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I'm not an expert. Don't take anything I've said. But I'm just telling you what uh, is it, starting to be talked about behind closed doors and even now a little bit publicly. So uh, I'm optimistic. There's a lot of optimism, uh, especially when you look at what happened in South Africa, which was the ground zero for the Omicron, and now the numbers are getting much, much better. So there is a certain amount of optimism in the long term for the Omicron uh, mutation, but like all things, we've been proven wrong so many times with the coronavirus, so it remains to be seen. So I hope tourists are coming back as soon as possible. Um, 
and things seem to be moving in that direction, but remains to be seen. All right, well, that seems like a good place to end our last webinar of 2021. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for taking time thank to you. update us. For our viewers and listeners, we will not be having a webinar on Friday. We wish you a safe and healthy, happy new year. Have a good one.